Good morning, church. Or I should say good day, I guess, to be culturally sensitive from where I'm serving now. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, you guys are kind of like our home away from church home. Um, Kathleen was asking me this morning how long we've been serving as missionaries, and I said about 10 years, and I realized that your church has been partnering with us for about 10 years. Um, I think when y'all were meeting in the school, uh, just started meeting, and Jamie Peterson was there, and uh, so we've been with you guys a long time and had lots of chances to preach here and be with you guys, and plus a lot of our old Trinity folks are now here, and so it feels very much at home to be here with you guys and to worship with you and to enjoy time together. Uh, so thank you for your partnership with us. Thank you for praying for Hadara, who we were able to pick up from China in November, and she's part of the reason we're here. We weren't able to get all her visa stuff squared away, um, but we're grateful to be here and have the opportunity to be with you. Um, if you don't uh, pray with and for us in our ministry specifically, there's a sign-up sheet out at the table out there where you can receive our weekly update, and we would really value your partnership in prayer. Um, prayer is a, a vital aspect of how we do missions faithfully and fruitfully, and so please join in praying with us in that if you would. Well, I have the privilege to open up uh, the book of Isaiah to you, or as we would say in Australia, Isaiah. Uh, so if you turn to Isaiah chapter 49, the students would give me a hard time. We preached through Isaiah in our uh, Friday night service a number of times. And I kept trying to consistently say Isaiah, but it would be Isaiah and then Isaiah. And uh, so I'm sure I'll say it probably multiple times both ways here tonight, this morning. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 to 7. One of the famous servant songs, this is called the fifth gospel, the book of Isaiah, uh, because of how much it points us to our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, helps us to find our hope and our help in him. And so my prayer today is that as we read Isaiah 49, 1-7, to that you will find your hope and help in Christ and you will broadcast that to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 1-7, to please hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands. And give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said... I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Friends, I assure you that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever, and what you've just heard is God's word. Let me pray as we continue to move on. Father in heaven, we've just read your word. We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit who inspired this scripture. We're thankful of how it points us to your Son and servant 
the Lord Jesus in whom we have life through our union with him by faith. We're so thankful that we are the fulfillment of what we've just read, that Christ, your servant, would be the light to the nations. Thank you for the privilege of being loved by you, of experiencing salvation in Christ, and through our union with Christ to be his representatives to this world, to continue to be the light of the gospel to the nations. We pray that you would open this text to us as we continue to consider it, as we think about it. Lord, I pray for your assistance as the preacher of your word this morning, that despite my weakness and inability, that your Holy Spirit would speak powerfully to us, that each of us might sit under your word, that you would give us hearts of faith to see the beauty, the ravishing beauty of Jesus, to find our all and sufficiency in him, and to be so compelled by his glory that we would not be able to contain it to Frisco, but that we might indeed, in the different ways you call us, be a light to the nations, that you may be glorified as you redeem men, women, boys, and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be your worshipers and to experience salvation in your son, the servant. So please bless this time. Make it fruitful beyond measure, we would pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Olympics, the Summer Olympics are soon to be upon us. Our family is anticipating them. We watch them every year. Uh, We love to watch swimming and track and field and lots of sports we don't typically watch. It was about 20 years ago in the Olympics that Sydney, Australia first kind of got into my vision. You may remember the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000, um, the iconic uh, um, opera house being on every picture it seemed like. And the star of that games was a young Aussie bloke named Thorpey or Ian Thorpe. Australians always like to shorten everything, so they call him Thorpey or the Thorpedo. And he was literally the star of the games, not just for Australia, but really pretty much for the world. This gangly 17-year-old boy who was a man among boys in that pool. He was not only the most decorated Olympic athlete from Australia, he was the most decorated Olympic athlete, period, at the 2000 Games. What a wonderful thing for Australia, showing off Australia to the world, introducing Australia to the world, and one of their own able to dominate And dominate he did in the 400-meter freestyle and race after race, winning three gold medals and two silver medals at those Olympics. And then following that, four years later in Athens as a 21-year-old, winning more gold medals, finishing to be the most decorated Aussie Olympic athlete ever. He's only 37. He's younger than me, but he is a legend in Australia. You can go to downtown Australia or downtown Sydney, where we live, and you can see the Ian Thorpe Aquatic Center. And he's a hero. He's honored very frequently. People love the torpedo. Now, Ian Thorpe in the pool was representing Australia. He was bringing glory to Australia as he won on their behalf. And he's rightly been honored by them in many ways. But not only did people enjoy and celebrate Ian Thorpe as this champion on their behalf, he started a whole new generation of young Aussie men and women who wanted to be like him who wanted to go and to bring glory to their country in the swimming pool. Swimming is one of the biggest sports in Australia, and Ian Thorpe has pushed it into overdrive. His achievements were not something merely to admire, but for many young Australians to imitate. I think that's a picture of what we see in our text today as we celebrate the servant. We, as Christians living on this side of the cross, know that the servant points to none other than our Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose again in service to his Father, in service to bring us salvation. 
We know this is of him. We celebrate Jesus, and we're going to spend some time in this text just celebrating the servant, considering what it means for him to be the servant, how glorious he is. But we're not just going to stop there at admiration, just as young Aussies did not stop at admiration of Ian Thorpe. We're going to see how in our union with Christ, as his spirit lives in us, he calls us not only to admiration, but to wholehearted imitation especially in his ministry of being a light to the nations. A ministry that we saw in our New Testament reading is now our ministry because of our union with Christ, the servant. And so I want to speak to you today how we are called from this text to serve the servant among the nations. We are called as those united to the servant to serve him among the nations. And I just have two points to draw out from this text. Again, I want us to focus in glory in the servant, I want you firstly to see the servant who saves. And I have a capital T-H-E. He is the servant. See the servant who saves. And then secondly, I'm going to call you to serve the servant among the nations. But before we get there, let's revel in Jesus for a few moments if we can. I know this is a church that revels in Jesus and I'm thankful for that. We see in Isaiah 49 this servant, a single savior who fulfills and does everything that the nation of Israel was supposed to do, but had failed to do. Look at verse 3 with me, as the servant is identified, as he's called, He said to me, the Lord said to me, You are my servant Israel. Now, in the servant psalm, sometimes it's confusing, because sometimes servant can refer to the whole nation of Israel. You can look at chapter 44, we won't go there, but it's clear that the whole nation of Israel is God's servant. But here I want to suggest that the text is making it clear that the servant here is not the nation as a whole, but a single individual, the servant. Why do we think that? Well, the text itself leads us to that. Look at verse 5 and 6. As the servant now speaks, this is the servant's language in verse 5, the servant says, Now the Lord says to me, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, and notice his task, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, Look at verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, and notice his mission, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. We'll talk about light for the nations in a minute. But it's clear that the servant is not Israel because his mission is actually to restore Israel back to God. He's going to go to the nations, but he starts with God's covenant people there. He's a single individual, but he's come to restore Israel Interestingly, if you look back at verse 3, notice what God calls him. He's my servant, but he calls him Israel. You are my servant, Israel. And it kind of might leave you scratching your head. Why, does he, why is he a single person, but he's calling him Israel? That's kind of confusing. Well, I believe that we're to understand that Jesus is the ideal Israelite. He is the ultimate son of Abraham. He is everything Israel was supposed to be, but failed to be. Think about their calling. Look at the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, other places. Israel was supposed to be a nation, having experienced God's saving grace, redeeming them from Egypt, living in response to that grace and faithfulness to their covenant with God. They were meant to be a light to the surrounding nations. The nations were supposed to look at them and say, we want to know this God that redeems you, that changes you, that transforms you into such a just society of His grace. But they failed, didn't they? They failed miserably. 
And so God calls his servant, his son, his incarnate son, as we know later, to be the new Israel. And precisely where the corporate nation of Israel failed, the new Israel, Jesus, if you will, would succeed. Look at verse 6 again. He would achieve his mission At the end of verse 6, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He would succeed where Israel failed. Now, this is actually really important for us to understand. It really will help you as you read your New Testament to know that Jesus is the new Israel. He fulfills the promises to Israel. Look at Matthew chapter 2. It helps us to make sense of what some of the New Testament writers do. Matthew chapter 2, a passage you may have read during the Advent season, speaking of Jesus shortly after the Magi visited him, Matthew 2, verse 14 to 15, says, And he rose and took the child, speaking of Joseph, his adopted father, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And notice the next phrase, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is an interesting quote, isn't it? It comes from the book of Hosea. And in Hosea, we might expect that this was some prophecy spoken about Jesus, but when you turn to Hosea, if you have the time to do that, you would see that this isn't even prophecy. It's spoken about the whole nation of Israel, and it's not a prophecy of what God would do in the future. It's actually looking back to what God had done in the past by delivering the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And yet, the New Testament writers is taking something of the corporate entity of Israel, applying it to the individual Jesus, taking something that historically happened and saying, this is speaking of what Jesus would do. How does he get there? How does Matthew get there? Because Matthew and the other New Testament writers understand that Jesus is the new Israel. He recapitulates the story of Israel, but whereas Israel failed, Jesus is faithful. He succeeds. He is the new Israel. He's the new servant. And he accomplishes something for his father and on behalf of God's people. Everything Jesus does is a public ministry, if you will. It's not just for his private benefit. It's for his covenant people, his chosen people, Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Think about my Ian Thorpe illustration. You remember he was a championship swimmer in the 2000 Olympics. You can imagine if he's swimming, let's say, in lane one. I, I, didn't, I don't remember the broadcast. It's been 20 years, and I didn't go back and watch it. But it might have, they might have said something like this as they were broadcasting the race, and Ian Thorpe was crushing everyone with his flipper-like feet, showing himself to be the torpedo, And as he's in lane one, the the announcers may have very well said, Australia's in the lead. Australia's going home. And as he touches that pool, Australia has the gold medal. Even though it's the single guy, Ian Thorpe, swimming in that pool. But Ian Thorpe had a representative capacity. He was not just swimming for himself. He was swimming for his country. When Ian Thorpe touched that pool, the finish line of the 400-meter freestyle before everyone else, he not only gained glory for himself, he one on behalf of Australia. He accomplished something for his people, if you will. And of course, that's a dim shadow of what the servant accomplishes, isn't it? He accomplishes eternal redemption. For those of us who we've sung about today deserve to be under God's wrath for our sins, he accomplishes redemption so that we can be restored to our Creator, experience the reason we were made to image him forth fully and enjoy him 
now and to eternity. The servant is the Savior who comes to fulfill. And I want to highlight a few things of his ministry just to help us to glory in him. If you're not yet a Christian and you're here, I hope as we look at these things that you'll see Jesus perhaps in a new way. And maybe though you may have despised him, as he talks about in this text, by the end, you may see that Jesus is a glorious Savior. That what he did as the servant is all glorious. And for those of us in Christ, those of us joined to the servant, I pray that our hearts would be deepened in our affections for what Christ has accomplished. Notice the purpose of the servant in verse 3, back in Isaiah 49. He said, you are my servant Israel, in whom I'll be glorified. Now, you're good Presbyterians. You know the first question of the Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Well, here's the chief end of the servant. And everything he did, even though he was coming to deliver those who deserve condemnation and bring them into salvation, his chief purpose was to glorify God, to honor him, to bring praise to God the Creator, to his Father. And how would he do that? Look back at verse 6. One of the chief ways he would do that was by fulfilling the mission that Israel had by being a light to the nations and letting God's salvation reach to the end of the earth. Interestingly, in Hebrew, as I was reading this, I was struck because our text says, I will make you as a light for the nations. And our English text says that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But in Hebrew, it just says, I will make you as a light for the nations, my salvation to the end of the earth. In the Hebrew, it becomes more clear that salvation is not something that the servant brings apart from him, as if he brings a gift that he hands over, but that he himself is the salvation. In his person, he is the redemption of God's people because of what he would do. And what he would do is spoken of so clearly a few chapters later in Isaiah, very familiar words, Isaiah 53, verse 4 to 6. This is how the servant becomes in his person the salvation of those who would trust him. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he, speaking of the servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is how the servant becomes in his own person the salvation of his people. He would substitute himself for them. He would stand under the almighty wrath of God and he would take it and satisfy it so that those who would be united to him by faith might be reconciled and freely forgiven and counted righteous and be sons and daughters of the living God. What a glorious mission that he fulfilled. And yet, with this glorious mission, we might expect that he would have come and experienced success after success after success, somewhat like Ian Thorpe. Ian Thorpe, even before the 2020 Olympics, made a splash on the world scene at age 15 in Perth at the Swimming World Championships. And at 15, he won the gold medal in the 400-meter freestyle Champion of the world, 15. Any 15-year-olds in here? Yeah, can you imagine being a world champion, crushing all these men? 
Gold medals at 17 in Sydney, the most decorated athlete, 21. He went from success to success to success. He's still a young man in my book. He's 36, and yet he's this old retired swimmer. We might think that the servant would be like that, but that's not so. We saw in our text that his servant ministry initially looked like a complete failure, did it not? Look at his ministry. His ministry was, first of all, to bring God's word Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Josiah, you like those? I'm sure my son loves arrows. He loves arrow imagery. The imagery is that the servant is supposed to come and have a word ministry that is so powerful that it's like if you're in close combat, you want a sharp sword, right? You're fighting back in the day. Now you want a gun. We're Texans. But back in the day, before guns, you want a sharp sword, if your enemy is over there, you want, you want a bow, you want the quiver, you want a polished arrow that will go straight and hit the target right between the eyes. Right, Josiah? That's right. He loves his arrows. He had this ministry of the Word that was supposed to be powerful as he revealed God's kingdom, as he proclaimed God's Word. But we know that his ministry was not well received, was it? Look at Isaiah 49.4. This is the way the servant initially estimated his ministry. I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Or look at the beginning of verse 7. He says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. The servant who has this powerful word ministry, his ministry seems to be a failure initially. And don't we see that in the life of the servant when he did come on the scene, Jesus John 1.18 says that the purpose of the Father, you know, grace and truth realized through Moses, I'm sorry, uh, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 1, in many days God spoke to us by the prophets, in these last days He's spoken to us in His Son. And so the Son came as the servant and He spoke God's Word like no one has ever spoke God's Word. And yet most people rejected Him. His own people. John 1.11 says He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Jesus looked like a failure in his ministry as he fulfilled the servant, what the servant psalm promised. So much a failure that he would get crucified on a cross, the ultimate sign of God's disfavor. I mean, think about his disciples, his disciples who for three years he had told them, look, I must go to the cross, I must go to the cross, I must go to the cross. And even they, when he goes to the cross, can't fathom how this can be the servant Messiah. How can the Messiah be crucified and under the wrath of God? Even his disciples thought it was a failure, at least for three days, right? And so the servant's ministry looks like a failure, and yet in what seems to be a failure is his greatest success on behalf of God's people. And we see in the servant Psalm of Isaiah 49 that, The Lord will reward him. Notice the servant, even as he sees what he thinks is a failure of his ministry, he trusts God to reward his faithfulness. Look at verse 4. He says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. He's been faithful. Man may reject him, but he knows that God will honor him. And look how God promises that he'll honor him. Verse 6, he gives him the initial, he's going to ministry of bringing Israel back. He said, but he says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant 
to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, it's not enough honor for you simply to bring back the Jewish people to me. So what's he going to do with his servant at the end of verse 6? I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He didn't want his servant simply to be worshipped by his people, but by all the nations of the earth. He brings him honor because of his willingness to be the servant, to lay down his life. And look at the success he'll have. In verse 7, we saw that he was deeply despised, but that's not the final picture. The end of verse 7 says, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. That is honor. The greatest of the pagan nations submitting to the servant and to God through the servant. It's the picture of humble servanthood and obedience that the Father exalts. It's the picture we love to celebrate and see in Philippians chapter 2, if you would turn there, this famous passage. Isn't this a picture of what we just read in Isaiah 49? Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and notice verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you, Christian. Verse 9, because of his obedience and servanthood to the cross, what happens? Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his obedience, the servant seems to fail, but his failure has ultimately become his greatest success. In his failure, he atones not only for the nation of Israel and those who would trust him, but for the nation's who would trust in him. I wonder if you're here as a young person or an older person, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You've looked and thought, what is this Jesus who died on a cross? What is he to me? Why is he significant? Why is he so important? And I just want to highlight that from our passage in Isaiah 49, if that's you, a lot of people thought about that about the servant initially. But it was because he was a king like no other, a king who came as a servant to die in the place of sinners that anyone who hears this gospel invitation may put their faith in him. Non-Christian, Christ died on a cross so that I can freely offer him to you. He will give himself to you if you will receive him, and in him you will find salvation you will find that he came not only to serve his father, but to serve you as you trust him. And Christian, today I just encourage you to join the father in honoring his servant, honoring Jesus, glorying in the fact that, again, we are the fulfillment of what has been promised in Isaiah 49. I think most of us are Gentile heritage. There may be a few Jews here. Most of us are the fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 6, that he would be a light to the nations. We are the benefits of everything we've read that the servant would accomplish in Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 53 and other places. How can we not revel in him? How can we not worship him? How can our hearts not be overflowing with joy and praise and adoration at the loveliness 
of the one who served us to the point of death, that we might have life in him. Friends, I call you to see this servant who saves, to admire him. But just as the servant embodied Israel, so too those of us who are united to the servant by faith, we are called to embody his ministry. And so I want you to consider how we are called to serve the servant among the nations. I don't know if you paid attention when Chuck read the uh, New Testament reading, but I want to turn your attention there again. Look at Acts 13, verse 44 and 48. Now, even if we didn't have this text, we might think that because Israel's God's people had a mission to be a light to the nations, and they failed, and Jesus succeeded, that we who are united to the servant, now the people of God, might continue on that mission. We might assume that anyway. But we don't have to assume. Paul makes it extremely clear that for those of us who are united to the servant, we continue his mission. Or we might say he continues his mission through us. Look at what he says in Acts 13, 44 and 48. On his first missionary journey, verse 44 says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded who? Us. Saying. What's he going to quote? He's going to quote from our passage in Isaiah 49, verse 6. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see what Paul is teaching us? It's not just the servant that has that mission, and so we can say, oh, thank God he did it all. And of course, in one sense, Jesus has done it all. But Jesus continues to do his mission through his church, through his people, through those who, if you will, allow themselves to be served by Jesus, to experience his grace. He is at work within the church so that we would be light to the nations. Again, verse 47 of Acts 13 says, The Lord has commanded us, and I think that falls to all of us, the church, not just Paul and his companions there. And so what I want to do is briefly call out four things from Isaiah 49 that we saw about the mission of the servant and apply them to us because he continues his mission through us. The first thing I want to highlight is that God's calling of us to be a light to the nations is by grace and grace alone. Look back at Isaiah 49. Notice when the Lord called the servant. Verse 1, the Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Or verse 5 again, now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to him. The calling of the servant was all of grace. And so Christian is your calling. You're calling into a faith relationship with a servant. You're calling to be God's people. You're calling to experience salvation. It happened from the womb. In fact, it actually happened way before the womb, did it not? <laughs> Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. If you are a man, woman, boy, or girl, united to the servant by faith, God chose you for that purpose, all of grace, before the foundation of the world, to experience salvation in Him, but also to join into His great mission. 
that the servant might continue his mission in and through you. And so if you name yourself Christian here, if you say, yes, I'm united to the servant, I have to ask you, do you live as if you've been chosen for a purpose? Because the scripture says you have. Do you live that way? And specifically, do you live that way in regards to the chief mission of the servant in Isaiah 49? That he would be a light to the nations, that he would, he would be the salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you recognize, Christian, that that is your calling in Christ, in union with the servant? His calling of you is by grace, and with that grace brings great joyful responsibility because you were saved with a purpose. Secondly, God calls us to glorify Him by taking the gospel to the nations. We saw that the chief end of the servant was to glorify God, and one of the main ways he did that was taking the gospel to the nations, or being the gospel for the nations, we might say. And so one of the ways as we seek to honor our Redeemer and walk with Him is to have that same passion, that same vision that God would be glorified as Japanese people who do not know Christ hear the gospel and repent. As people in India hear the gospel for the first time and repent and begin to worship God and experience salvation in Him. The burning passion of our desire to see God glorified must be the song that we sang, May Your Kingdom Come. We can't just be satisfied with our neighbors in Frisco, though we must be passionate about them. We must take the gospel to them, but we can't stop there because God's glory is too great. The servant is too great only to have his name honored in North Texas. His name must be honored among the nations, among every tribe, tongue, and nation, that in turn he may bring glory to his Father. And if you love Christ, if Christ's Spirit is in you, then you love this mission. Henry Martin, the great missionary to the Middle East, said this, he said, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. And so can I ask you, friend, Christian, as those united to the servant by faith, are you passionate about his mission? Can you say, Richie, as, a, as one united to Christ, these are the specific ways I know God has called me to participate in the gospel going to the nations? For some of you, I hope, God may be calling you to be a long-term missionary. God may be calling you, some of you young people, and some of you not-so-young people, to take the good news, to leave the comforts of North Texas, and this is a comfortable place, and to go where the gospel is needed more. Are you considering that? Will you continue to pursue that? God is calling all of us to be senders, to make sure our finances are shaped by the priority of taking the gospel to the unreached, that our prayer life, if you will, we tithe our prayer life to the gospel going forward to the nations. How are you strategically praying for the gospel to go to the nations, Christian? How does your budget reflect this priority and commitment to take the gospel to the nations? Can you say to me, and not really to me, but before the Lord, I have such a passion for the glory of the servant among the nations. This is how I believe God is calling me to serve him in that. We must know. We must intelligently obey. Because as Paul showed us in Acts 13, this calling is for us. God has commanded us to allow the life of Christ through us to go through the nations. 
Thirdly, God prepares us to suffer as we serve the servant who suffered. You know that Jesus is often called not just the servant, but the suffering servant. His ministry was hard. He was rejected and crucified. His ministry seemed like a failure in many respects. But he was faithful because he obeyed the Lord. And God used that. When we say that we don't want to play our part, if we feel that God may be calling us to go to a new nation to take the gospel, and we say, I can't do that, really what we're saying, honestly, is that I just don't want to suffer. It's too hard. Too hard to be away from family. Too hard to be away from Tex-Mex food. Too hard to be away from the Dallas Cowboys. Whatever you love here, those are things I love. I'm sorry, I'm speaking personally. Then we're just saying, it's too hard. I don't want to suffer Jesus. Or if you know, hey, God has not called me to be a sender or to be a goer, but a sender. But you know what? I, I want what I want when it comes to my car and my house and my vacations. I'm not willing to cut back on those things so my budget can reflect a priority of giving and supporting the work of the gospel to the nations. I just want to pray about my family and my time. I, I can't carve out the time to pray for the nations and pray for missionaries who are serving there and pray for God's kingdom to go forward When we reject these things, what we are really saying is that I'm glad Jesus suffered for me, but I'm not willing to suffer with and for him. And yet, if we are going to be united to the suffering servant, we have to know that the calling to follow him is a call to suffer if we're going to be wholeheartedly committed to that. Jesus said in John 15, 20, this about those who follow him, This is encouraging, friends. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, there's going to be a combination of success as we follow Jesus. They'll keep his word. Some will. But the call to follow Jesus is a call to suffering. It just is, friends. It just is. I'll never forget a phone call I got from, I'll call him Larry. It's not his real name, but one of the pastors I met with weekly in India And Larry's life goal, he lived about an hour outside our major city, and there were five villages around this city, and his life goal as a pastor was to see a church planted in each of these five villages. And so, by God's grace, he was seeking to make that happen. He was going out and sharing the gospel and preaching, and he was working in one village, and he called me and said, Richie, I came out of this home where I was meeting with a family, praying with them, and these Hindu men surrounded me. My son, Ashravad, who's seven, was with me, and they pushed me down. They kicked me, they beat me, and they said, you may not come here. We don't want your Jesus here. My first thought is like, okay, this is a little bit out of my realm of experience. I haven't counseled anybody on this before. So I'm trying to think, what do I say to Larry? And Larry says, you know what, Richie, I'm not discouraged. I'm going to keep going back there. I'm going to keep sharing the gospel. Jesus promised us that we would suffer for him. I just want you to pray for the strength to do that. And I thought, okay, I have a new hero. (laughs) Larry's my new hero. The call to follow Jesus, the call to be passionate about the mission we're called to, is a call to suffering. But where are we going to find that strength? How are we going to do that? Because I know how weak I am. I know how addicted to comfort I am. And you probably know the same about yourself. Well, where did the servant find it? Look back at verse 5 of Isaiah 49. At the very end, we may have missed it. He says, for God has become my strength. The servant was able to be the suffering servant because God was his strength. The only way we can give ourselves to the mission 
that we're called to have in union with the servant is if God is our strength. Because it's too hard. It's too great for us. And one of the ways that God strengthens us is my fourth and final point. That God promises that in the end he will exalt us as he exalted his suffering servant. Again, look at Isaiah 49. First, he says, I've labored in nothing, spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Then it says, surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. Verse 7, we saw the same thing. They were despised, but at the end of verse 7, kings shall see and arise. That was true of Jesus. He suffered first, but because of his faithfulness in his suffering, he was glorified. Suffering and then glory, suffering and then glory. It's not just the pattern of Jesus. It's the pattern of those united to him by faith. Suffering and then glory. We have an incredible promise. It's called the resurrection. (laughs) The return of Jesus and our resurrection with him. That is our hope. And that is the only thing that will enable us to radically fulfill the call to be a gospel, to take the gospel and be a light to the nations, is this promise of resurrection. Because the worst people can do, friends, and listen to this, the worst people can do to you, young people, who maybe they tease you at school because of your following Jesus, the worst they can do to you is kill you. And you may think, well, Richie, that's pretty bad. But from the biblical perspective, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. In fact, over and over again, it says, don't fear those who can only kill you. I was so struck when I was reading Revelation again the other day, the encouragements that Jesus gave to his church. Look at Revelation 2, 8 to 10. This is so countercultural to us. To the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Listen to verse 10. Do not fear, he says. Why? Is it because he's going to shield them from all suffering? No, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. How countercultural to us. Jesus says, don't fear death. Don't not join in my mission and be willing to suffer because you're afraid of what can happen, even death. Why? Because surviving death in that way is not our hope. We will survive death. We will overcome death because we are united to the servant who died and rose again and promises that in our union with him, we will be resurrected. He is coming back. And Christian, that is our hope. And that is the only hope that will allow you to obey the mission that Christ has for his church to be the light to the nations. It's only the promise of resurrection can give you that boldness that laser focus, and put to death the fear of suffering. But as Christians living in North Texas in 2020, we are often more concerned about our recreation now and our retirement when our working years are done than the resurrection and return of our Redeemer. I mean, let's be honest. We are a people addicted to comfort and ease. And I mean we. I see it in my own heart. I know the temptations. All of us are addicted to comfort and ease And one of our top priorities, though we would never say this, is to avoid suffering. We don't want hardship. And we have so many things around us that can help us to avoid hardship. But that's not the Christian life. That's worldliness. The Christian life only works when our hope is fully on the return of Jesus and our resurrection with him. Anything short of that, it defaults how the Christian life is meant to work. And this makes us willing to joyfully join with our servant Redeemer 
in taking the gospel to the nations, whether as a goer or as a sender. And so I ask you today, friends, where is your hope? Is your hope on your recreation now and your retirement in 10, 20, 30 years? Or is your hope on resurrection and the return of your Redeemer? And are you living in light of that by joining in His mission to be a light to the nations? I'll close by telling you the story of the one-way missionaries. I don't know if you've heard them. Uh, there were a group of folks who lived about 200 years ago. Some of them were Presbyterians. Believe it or not, Presbyterians have sometimes led the way in missions. And some of these one-way missionaries took the gospel to the hardest places. And do you know why they were called one-way missionaries? Because they weren't expecting to come home on HMA or furlough. Many of them packed their goods in a coffin because that's how they expected to return. One such missionary was Peter Milne. He was a Scottish Presbyterian, and he went to a place close, to, close where we serve, the islands of Vanuatu. The people of Vanuatu were vicious people. They were headhunters. They were cannibals. And people had gone to them and tried to share the gospel and had been eaten. And so Peter Milne, so compelled by the vision of his Savior, sovereign Savior, he was a good Scottish Presbyterian, he went expecting to pay the ultimate price. He thought, maybe, maybe I'll have a few weeks, a few months before I die, but I'm going to do whatever I can to proclaim Jesus he was ready to suffer, and he did suffer some, but he did actually live. He didn't die. In fact, he lived there for 50 years. He lived a normal, lengthy life, amazingly. And when he died, by the time his ministry was over of half a, dec or half a century, many of the tribes there had come to faith in Jesus. And when he died, they wrote something very interesting on his tombstone, especially in light of Isaiah 49. Remember our calling to be a light to the nations? They wrote on Peter Milne's tombstone, these natives who'd been brought to faith in the Redeemer, they said, when he came, there was no light. But when he left, there was no darkness. Mill knew what it was to be a servant of the servant. And friends, in the power of the risen servant, God calls us, us, every Christian, to play our part in being a light to the nations. I'd like you to join me in prayer. I want you to close your eyes if you would. And I just want to give you a chance before I pray for you to do some business with the Lord. I want to walk you through just two things to pray for. Would you first of all celebrate the servant? Would you spend just a moment praising Jesus for being the suffering servant, the one who came and accomplished salvation for you? Just spend a moment in prayer and then I'll lead us to the next prayer point. second thing and the last thing I want you to pray about for just a moment is that you would pray that the Spirit of the risen Christ would empower you in whatever way you know He's calling you to participate in His great mission. Maybe some of you have been feeling that tug to think about long-term missions and you need to continue to explore. Pray that He would give you the strength to do that. Some of you maybe have been convicted that your prayer life, that your finances need to be reoriented and there are sacrifices that need to be made in how you live and that's a very hard thing. Would you spend some time, whatever the Lord has convicted you about, challenged you on, would you ask Him to be your strength in prayer? Ask the Spirit of the risen Christ to work in you. I'm going to give you just a moment before I lead us in prayer as you pray silently.
Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you were willing to give the very best you could give us when you sent your son to be the incarnate servant who you would crush in our stead, that in him we might have life. And we thank you that you've given us life for a great purpose, the greatest end that could ever be experienced by any being, which is to glorify and enjoy you. And Father, we're convicted by this text that one of the ways we must glorify and enjoy you is by continuing the mission of your Son as he works through us to be a light of the gospel to the nations. Father, we are such weak people. We are so addicted to our comfort and our pleasures. We are so unwilling to suffer. We have our priorities wrong so often. Forgive us. Give us the grace of repentance that we may not Focus on our recreation and our retirement, but on the resurrection and the return of our Redeemer. Please let that shape our lives. Let us set our hope fully on that. Lord, only you can do that in hearts like ours. And so we pray that you would, that we would find our deepest joy in glorifying you through this mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.